Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Effectively licensing your intellectual property can be a complex process. Brownstein IP attorneys Ian O'Neill and Dan Ackerman talk through where to begin with a commercialization of your IP, including inbound and outbound licensing, and choosing the correct type of license. Thank you for joining us for a Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast on the topic of transactional IP. This is Ian O'Neill. I'm a shareholder in the transactional IP group that specializes in more technology-related and data-related IP transactions. And Dan Ackerman here, also with the Transactional IP Brand Management Group, specializing more on the uh, the brand portfolio management, trademark, copyright domain, and everything else that touches the brand. And as a part of that, today we're going to be talking about IP licensing and commercialization of the IP. So if you're an owner that has trademark, patent, copyright, uh, domain rights or other types of intellectual property, uh, this is a topic that touches on uh, licensing and how to monetize that and also just control the rights and the uses by other people. Um, and we're talking about agreement structures for IP licensing. Typically, we're talking about IP licensing that deals with outbound licenses, inbound licenses. We have service agreements, outsourcing agreements, uh, and there's also some joint activity types out there. Generally speaking, uh, licenses are the grant of permission by an owner of a right to a person to do something with that. But for the permission of the owner, it would otherwise be an infringement of that owner's right. Um, it is not an assignment or a transfer because the, the licensor retains the legal and beneficial title. And there are, um, there are more than mere covenants not to sue. There are lots of control and positive obligations that are created as a part of it. Right. And... One of the things about licensing and why it's worth doing a podcast just to go back to kind of a basic 101 level here is it's very easy to fall into the trap of assuming a license is a license is a license without realizing that there are a lot of different types of ways in which you can get kind of the IP rights out and get the rights back in of the commercialization terms, you know, where I get the money flowing. Uh, based upon the deal structure and the needs of each side. And I'm a big fan of making sure that form follows function and the business terms kind of control the form of the agreement rather than trying to make a license work for any type of IP transaction. It really is kind of one of those common mistakes we see all the time that the wrong type of IP transaction agreement is used. And fundamentally, that's going to make the deal more difficult down the line and more ambiguous. And it's also just going to cause kind of um, a lot of wasted wasted time, wasted money, wasted effort, and a lot of disputes down the line if you haven't used the right structure to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. With those form follows function, when we're setting up the agreements, it's always important to ask that first question about what do you want to do? Exactly what do you want to grant and for what purpose? Exactly. The key with an IP transaction is always trying to figure out what are the business terms? What are you trying to accomplish? And to me, that starts off with a couple of things. The first one is understanding, well, what is the specific IP right that is going to need to be exercised in order for the licensee to accomplish a goal? It's easy to take an IP right and just kind of a wholesale say this is why I'm licensing you but that may not be necessary and it may also be incorrect and it may be passing out more rights than you want it may be putting more of a burden on the licensee than they want so the first step the threshold step for any IP transaction 
is really identifying and locking down what that IP is that's going to be actually kind of a subject of a transaction and what the business case for that IP being used is and make sure the two match up. More often than not, it's easy to see, especially more kind of junior attorneys that are new to this area or attorneys that don't practice in this area on a regular basis make these sweeping assumptions that this is my trademark, I will license it out. This is my copyright, I will license it out. Without really digging into, wait, what is it that you want to do with my IP and what do I really need you to give you the rights to do? And let's make sure that this matches what you think you're going to be able to do with it. Yeah, and with with companies that own multiple types of IP, not giving away too much and uh, reining in the grants under those licenses as valuable as uh, as identifying where you think the, the initiating start, uh, point is for identifying, limiting, capturing, and then also double checking you giving that sanity check where you go back and say um i know the grant i want to give i know the limitations it has to be um in the business world where should i also make sure that those markers and those uh, those limitations are set so that we can make sure we're not giving away a competitive advantage to anyone who can right. turn it around upon us absolutely so once you've decided which type of ip is going to go out what the rights are i think the first the first analysis then is okay who am I working for? Am I working for the licensee or the licensor here? Who is going to be in charge of controlling this transaction? What type of license are we looking at? Is this an inbound license where I am going to effectively be the licensee licensing this in? Or is this outbound? Am I drafting this from the point of a licensor saying kind of licensing my IP out? Obviously, the transaction is the same transaction. But there are two different sides to the transactions. Consider which part it makes sense and who is controlling the grants. If it's a, a business or an individual, uh, even a sole proprietor out there who who doesn't think that this touches upon them, uh, if they've opened up their computer today and started it, they've operated under a license. So Exactly. Even if you don't realize how important it is in our day-to-day, almost every business everywhere has to operate either as a licensee or a licensor to do a business in modern technology. Exactly. And taking a look at that distinction, it seems kind of almost trivial and pointless to say which side are you, are you looking at this from, the licensee or licensor side, because obviously in every transaction there's going to be a licensee and there's going to be a licensor. But it's remarkable how much it actually controls the form of the agreement. For example, common outbound licenses right, are just regular licenses, are trademark licenses, are kind of patent licenses, copyright licenses. Uh, distributor licenses to give distributors the rights to actually use your IP when they're going out and selling, resellers, that type of thing. On the other hand, there are lots of kind of what we would call specific, specialized outbound licenses. Things like system integrated licenses, white label licenses, um, OEM licenses, where you are specifically putting your IP out there to be incorporated and hidden inside another product that's going outside, and that's a pure outbound license. Um, so it really does kind of require that you figure out what, where the license is and where the trajectory is, and whether it's going inbound or outbound as a preliminary matter. Yeah, and I think those those specialty ones are are important because um, depending on your practice and your area and your business, uh, identifying the difference between just a simple broad IP license versus a specialized one that we touched on earlier can can make a, a big difference. OEM 
ones are important for our clients in technology and manufacturing and componentry. Uh, right. Highly important for those. We also have um, the systems integrator agreements where we have ones that are similar to the OEM, uh, but different how they relate to software products being integrated to create a new offering. A lot of the software clients that you know we work with talk about how improvements, integrations that are key to their business, and we think about apps being such a big business now, plugins and updates, how that rules how we operate our phones, our computers, our systems. Exactly. White label, systems integrated, OEMs. These are all great examples of how defining the right form up front can really help, right? Because they are, those are all very similar licenses. To the, on the surface, it looks like they're doing the same thing. But the three of them are actually doing something completely different. You know, an OEM agreement is I'm an original equipment manufacturer, which is so it, it's doing what it sounds like. I am giving you, as the manufacturer of a widget, the right to take my IP, put it inside your widget, and hide it so you can sell your widget. A great example, right, is, say, a cable box. The end product that the customer buys is the cable box, the set-top box. But the OEM uh, license agreement will allow that cable box to include different components, uh, circuit boards, memory motherboards, uh, things like that, physical things like that, or software that's been put in there. Um, but it's all white-labeled and hidden. A white-label agreement, on the other hand, though, is quite different. It sounds the same, but a white-label just means that I'm going to take your, I'm going to effectively take your IP wholesale, take your name off it, put my name on it, and pass it off as my own because it's now white-labeled. Um, systems integrator, something different again. That's I'm going to have some type of offering. You know, for example, a website is a great, a great example. I have a website. My, that's my end offering, but I have certain functions I need within that website, such as, let's say, a widget that I can click on to immediately do a one-click pay. So I want a one-click pay function. I don't have the code to do that. I don't have the software to do that. I don't want to spend the time developing that. But I want to have that on my website. So I do a systems integrator deal with you know, somebody who does have that widget. And then I integrate that into my system to provide it. So there's lots of different kind of uh, variations that one of the things you really want to do as a first step is to identify the form. Once you've done that, then the question becomes what type of license? Not license with a big L as in the form, but license with a little L as in what are the specific rights I'm going to give you? Are you going to be the only person allowed to use this? So I give you an exclusive license. Am I going to license this to everybody so it's not exclusive? Or am I going to kind of get somewhere in between and do, you can use it, but I can still use it, but nobody else can. So it's a sole license. So there's lots of different questions that come into that uh, kind of setting up, okay, we've figured out what the IP is. We've figured out what the form is. Now, what am I actually going to let you do with my IP? Yeah, and this gets into leveraging the commercialization and monetization of the IP, where if it's something where you think that the exclusivity can grant a, a whole lot of money coming back as opposed to maybe parsing it out to non-exclusive series, you evaluate that with the business and the legal side in mind to say there might be... There might be business reasons that drive the decisions as well as the legal reasons. And under those same umbrella of license types, we're thinking about the royalty structure, the scope 
of it, that your geographical scope or your business scope, being able to to limit those or to drive them open are things that's the, it's like you said, it's the very next question you ask after once you've identified it is what are the types and what are the natures and parameters you want to set on it to make sure that you're making the most of every license grant. Right. This is where you hit that first risk threshold. There's lots of different risks that pop up in making the wrong decision as you go down the decision tree and you're all kind of structuring the license. But to my mind, this is the first one where you hit the first risk threshold, which is what do I think is going to happen with my IP over the next you know, 5, 10, 15 years, however long your IP has value? And what rights do I need to retain? What rights do I need to give out? What can I leverage here? If I give somebody an exclusive license now, is that going to effectively cut me out of a market that's going to explode two years from now? Does that person need rights to sub-license down the way? You know, um, there's all these different decisions that you need to kind of look at. Not what the, not just what the request is in front of you now for this business deal, but can you live with all these terms as you go forward? And as the the licensee, identifying that if someone is approaching you for a license, that you have many options of what you can you can license out, uh, limiting things like field of scope or geography or um, duration and term. All of those are ones that are as effective as what you are licensing out itself. Having those ones where um, not just the technology, but all of the um, the bundles that come along with it, which is another topic that we can dive into on another one about the, the bundles of rights with each right. one. But the control as a licensee, uh, you, you do not have to simply say, I have an IP asset. I'm going to license everything associated with it out because someone asked me to grant the license for a certain term. Right. And as a license, or you actively want to be very careful on what you do license out because, of course, the more you license out and give somebody else the right to use and the right to control, you need to ask yourself, is that necessary? Is that what's, is this exactly the right that needs to go? Because that leads to further questions down the line, such as if I license out all of these rights, even though we only asked for one through two, but I gave them one through five, who's now going to be responsible for enforcing those rights? Who's going to be responsible for making sure those rights are protected with various kind of authorities? Uh, if it's a patent right, making sure the patent remains prosecuted and defended and every, everything is filed on time to, make, to keep that, um, those rights perfected. If it's a trademark, who's going to be responsible for policing it to make sure there isn't some kind of de facto abandonment because I haven't bothered protecting my marks? If it's a copyright, who's going to be responsible for infringement claims, for defending infringement claims, for bringing infringement claims, for controlling derivatives? The more you give out like that, the more you have to think three steps ahead to who's going to be responsible for all the other things that are implicated over the next you know, five, ten years of protecting and maintaining and commercializing and enjoying those IP rights. Yeah, along with enjoying it comes the obligations as the ultimate owner, um, especially as you move away from the patent and then into the copyright and then all the way over to trademark. The, the control over the use so that you do not abandon, whether effectively or um, ineffectively through your control, building into those, building in those types of um, responsibilities and control factors are critical for some of the, the obligations because you could end up either with a naked license or with a license from which people could spin out and somehow create their own IP and claim ownership if you're not careful about monitoring what you're giving away, um, building the controls and enforcement, just like you said before, where 
you clearly lay out who's using it, but who's responsible for the enforcement policing and being diligent about the ownership and usage. And then when you get into the, the copyright area, too, where you're sw- switching over from trademark and copyright, controlling the nature of the use so that it meets your brand standards. If you're a big brand and you're going to license it out, um, you better still have a giant brand usage guideline that goes with it to clearly say, this is how my IP is used. These are the standards that must be met to adhere to proper. If they're not met, then you have the ability to pull it back. And having those controls can be an important step in it. Right. And, and the brand thing is interesting because the brand thing raises a point that I think goes across most types of IP, whether it's brand issues with your trademark and your name, or whether it's just a pure software IP license for a piece of software. The issue is very few licenses are meant to work by themselves once they're out there. Um, you negotiate the license in isolation. Typically, I'm, I'm licensing X. But you have to understand that very few pieces of IP ever work in isolation. So if you license a brand, chances are it's going to be used in conjunction with some type of software, like a mobile application to actually use it, or a website. Or it's going to be used on you know, television commercials or radio commercials or something that's going to trigger different union rights and things like that. And you know, the SAG-AFTRA terms may come up for continued residuals, even though your license is over, but somebody is out there, you know, a celebrity that was under SAG-AFTRA is still collecting residuals from you know, a commercial in which your brand was originally licensed for your brand. Or if it's software, you, know, you can come across issues along the lines of, well, I'm going to license you my software as either you know, an OEM arrangement, for example. I'm going to license you my software to put inside your widget. I want to make sure that your widget doesn't contain lots of bad viral open source software that's going to contaminate my software because I don't want it to be now converted and chained to a, an open source license. So there's all these questions that you need to ask, and that's why form really does follow function, to know exactly how the IP is going to be used and tailor the license to that use, which actually um, one of the things that may be a good thing to go through uh, to wrap up the podcast is maybe just a quick kind of... So a rundown of, you know, what in a typical license, what are the key provisions that we typically tend to see? So obviously, the first part of any license is going to be the license grant. Um, it's one of those things that seems very straightforward and simple and self-evident. You know, the term license would imply that there has to be a section which says license or hereby grants licensee X rights. It's actually kind of funny how, in um, practice, how many licenses you come across that actually don't have the license grants just through sloppy drafting. Um, so obviously, the first part of any license, and the most important part, is the license grant. And the license grant should spell out who, what, what is being licensed, on what terms, whether it's an exclusive license, non-exclusive, sole, etc. Is it revocable? Is it not revocable? Is it perpetual? Is it for a limited term? Is it limited to a particular geography? Is it limited to a particular use? Also, you know, is it royalty-bearing? Is it royalty-free? Am I going to pay you up front and that's all the consideration you require or are there going to be ongoing payments? This 
goes into a license grant. And it's very careful. It's really common to see people just throwing the entire kind of toolkit of terms for what a license is without thinking through what each of those words mean. But obviously, irrevocable and perpetual, not the same thing. You know, perpetual is forever unless revoked. Irrevocable means you can't revoke it. Um, exclusive, non-exclusive seems self-evident. Um, the difference between non-exclusive and sole is one of those you have to be careful about. So it's the license grant should be very carefully structured to match exactly the intent of the parties. Obviously, after the license grant, the next section should be the term. How long is the license going to be granted for? Uh, does it renew? Does it auto-renew? Does it expire? You know, what, what is the understanding here for how long that license is going to be granted in the the full scope of rights. Then, you know, after that, I typically would next want to spell out, okay, so we know what's being licensed, for what use, for how long. So the next structure is obviously on what commercial terms, for what what payments, what fees, who's going to pay what, when, and where. And this goes beyond royalties. This obviously goes into areas where you have issues such as is it just a straight payment? Is there some type of equity tier where if I license you this, I'm going to receive more than just a royalty. I'm going to receive some kind of ownership stake in whatever you're putting out using my IP. Do I get paid for anything that you create that's based upon my IP but is not my IP? A derivative work, for example. Or are they just prohibited? Um, restrictions tie into that too. When you talk about what's prohibited, are you allowed to do certain things with my IP? So, for example, if it's a software product, can I reverse engineer it? That sounds self-explanatory, but you'd think no. But sometimes I need to reverse engineer it. I need to reverse engineer it from a point of interoperability. I need to make sure it works with the rest of my, my software stack. What else can't I do with your IP? What else is prohibited here? Am I going to be able to see your source code? Or do I just get your object code? If I see your source code, do I have additional restrictions on that? If I don't see your source code, do I have access to it if you go out of business during the term of my license and therefore I need to have it escrowed somebody, you know, with somebody that I can get it from if you disappear on me? You know, those are the issues that go in there. You touched on the, the where part, which is also in the, along with the, the grant is the territory to which it's granted. And then you can have the agreements that pay attention to not just where are, am I able to use the technology, license it out to, or what areas in market or geography. Uh, but then also if you're a manufacturer, being careful to, to carve out the areas where if you are limiting your, your license grant to certain territories and you're excluding other ones either intentionally or for some type of purpose, you say, well, with the exception that I can still manufacture, distribute, ship within an excluded territory, carving those out as well so that you don't cut off your supply chain through a violation of your own <laughs> license grant there. Absolutely. And that, that becomes a really important issue in lots of licenses that I work on, I'm sure you too, Dan, where the territory is actually more of an issue than you would think, not just because the licensor can make more money by licensing it to different people in different territories, but because there's often overlapping rights. The licensor may have run this through a patent search, for example, and may be comfortable that it doesn't infringe in the U.S., but has no clue about the rest of the world. Um, in my practice, for example, I do a lot of work with uh, celebrities and a lot of work with movies and films, and there are always issues there with respect to 
uh, union rights and distribution rights and which studio will own the IP for a distribution uh, for distribution may not be the same in each different country. Or there may be specific issues that come up. For example, a movie studio that's distributing a movie only typically has the right to use the image and the appearance of the people that appear in that movie, the, the, the stars, as it were, for one year in order to promote that movie. And then after that, it becomes a an additional payment for each of those celebrities. So you have a new blockbuster movie. You're doing some licensed tidings for merchandise of that. You have the rights to promote it using your uh, Tom Cruise's image because he's the main star of a movie. You do that for too long, and all of a sudden, there are now extra dues uh, that you have to pay that are outside of anything you counted for because your license all no longer has the rights to license that to you, and you are now infringing because their rights exist. So it's very important to kind of work your way through that type of thing. Obviously, the next step would be obligations. That leads us into obligations, right? It's very important to spell out the specific obligations that you want each party to follow. You know, Dan, I know you touched on brand enforcement. Brand enforcement is one of those obligations that I try to be very clear about who is responsible for doing what to enforce a brand and who has the right to do what. You know, if it's a lawsuit, does the licensee have the right to enforce it or do I have to report it to the license or for the license or to report, or to enforce that infringement or to defend that lawsuit? Same with quality controls, brand guidelines, all of these obligations that go in there. Then you know the other two big issues are obviously reps and warranties and indemnification. Yeah, which could be another. We could do an entire podcast on how important they are. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good high level view of the IP license structure and the general ones. There are lots of categories and subcategories by types of IP, but I think that's a really good overview. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.